I do hope you have your Bibles open with me to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1, and verse 18. This is a new section in the book of Romans. Um, I keep a sermon schedule kind of plan ahead of, of where we'll be around what time of year and what I expect to be preaching each week. I, I do a terrible job of sticking to it, uh, a terrible job. Um, but according to the plan right now, uh, this new section of Romans that we are entering into, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, and uh, we're going to go through the end of chapter 2 and, uh, and then stop for a while and go to Genesis. And so uh, I expect that we will be in Romans 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 2, uh, up until April. And then sometime in April, uh, we will make the move back to the Old Testament for a while and uh, back into Genesis. We will have a, a brief break. Uh, the first two weeks of 2010, the first two weeks of January, uh, we're going to do a very special series about the role of our church in our community. And uh, it's a series I'm very excited about. There's been a lot of thinking and prayer and planning uh, put into it, and I'm praying that God will use it mightily. Uh, but in general, Romans 1.18 through Romans 2 will be our focus through the winter and into the spring. Um, this new section of Romans, beginning here in verse 18, actually is, is a large section that extends all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. So we have chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And this section of Romans is a tour through the depravity of man. Chapter 1, 16, we already looked at, is the glorious truth. God is powerful to save. And he does so through the gospel. Verse 17 of chapter 1 is a preview of what Paul is going to talk about in, at much more length later in Romans. Namely, how the gospel saves. How does the gospel save people? When we believe it, God gives to us the righteousness that we need. The righteousness we lack. When we believe the gospel... Jesus' righteousness is credited to us and we receive all the blessings that Jesus deserves. Just as all as our unrighteousness was credited to Christ on the cross and He took all the punishment that our sins deserved. Paul's going to rejoice in that glorious gospel truth beginning in Romans 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of Romans 3 and into Romans 4 and into Romans 5 and bring out its implications for our life in chapter 6, 7, and 8. There is much glorious good news to come. But in this section, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul wants us to know something else first. He wants to remind us of why we so desperately need the gospel. Why we so desperately need to be saved. These verses are not pretty. Nobody takes their life verse in this passage. These verses we're going to be studying are not the verses you find printed on placards in people's homes or sewn into quilts and blankets, printed on Hallmark cards. Rather, verse after verse of this section is an indictment of the human race. You've heard the old Greek saying, Know thyself. 
Well, in this section, the Bible is going to introduce you to yourself in very blunt, honest terms. If there are any unbelievers in this room, these verses describe who you are. For those of us who are Christians, these verses describe who we once were. And there are traces still of this in us. Hear that, Christian? We have been fundamentally changed. We are a new creation, and yet the Bible is very clear, and your experience too proves it, very clear about the reality of remaining sin. The day we are born again and believe on Christ, we do not become perfect, do we? We still struggle. We still have remnants of all that Romans is about to teach us still within us. We are recovering sinners. We still have many relapses. By grace, we have many victories. I pray you are knowing victory over sins in your life. But we also have many relapses. And so these verses have much to tell us about ourselves. How depressing. Justin, why would you want us to spend many weeks in verses telling us how bad we are? Let me give you four reasons why this is good for us. That There are many more. I just chose four why it's good for us to spend time here. Number one, we should spend time in this section of the Bible because these words were given to us for our good from the God who loves us. And He gave us these words to be studied and understood. In other words, we do this as an expression of faith. We study even this portion of Scripture because we believe that every word of the Bible is God-breathed and every word of the Bible is profitable for us. A good doctor will prescribe the medicines we need. Some medicines can be pleasant. I, I don't know why, but I have always liked the taste of Dimatap, the cough syrup. I, ever since I was a kid, I thought it tasted good. Now, I, don't, I don't drink it with my meals or anything, but, but when I'm, I have a cold, I, I, I don't hesitate to, to take Dimatap. I like the taste. Some medicines can be pleasant. But as you well know, other medicines that we may need can often be unpleasant, hard to swallow. Or we can be prescribed therapies that are painful and, and difficult. And yet, if a doctor is a good doctor, he or she will prescribe what we need, not what we want. Right? Well, so it is with God. He prescribes for us as the great physician what our souls need. And often it is very pleasant. Much of the book of Romans is, is going to be very sweet to the taste. Much of Romans is glorious and good and pleasant. But God in His wisdom has also chosen to prescribe for us this portion which in some ways stings and hurts. But we need it. And if we avoid it, we, we do so to our own detriment. So we're going to spend time here because we trust God. 
Second, we're, we're going to spend time here because these verses will help us to love the gospel. There, there's a lot of skipping these kinds of verses today. Um, preachers can get so worried about making sure that the services are, are happy and chipper. And, and I know this temptation. We want, we want everything to be optimistic. We want everything to be uplifting. And so there's a temptation to just jump from Romans 1.16 to Romans 3.21 and just skip the whole painful section in between. Of the talk about sin and law-breaking and corruption doesn't sell very well. It doesn't fill pews. But when that happens, when you skip these portions of Scripture, people come away loving themselves rather than loving the Gospel. When they're told all about God's love and Jesus and the cross, but they're not told about the reality of their sinfulness, they begin to think, well, of course God loves me. Of course Jesus came to save me. Yes, it was an incredible sacrifice, but I'm worth it. right? I'm attractive in the sight of God. Look how good I am that God thought that I was worth the giving of His Son. Have you ever had thoughts like that? These people may not be saved at all. They're full of selfish pride, and yet they love God. And why do they love God? Because they see the cross as a testament to their own worth. They love to make much of God because they're convinced that God exists to make much of them. It's easy to love a God when you think He exists only to serve you and love you and exalt you. And when you take the depths of our sin out of the equation, that's what you're left with. A God that exists to exalt me. And I fear that there are a lot of people, even in our own town, who are worshiping a God, truly a God of their own imagination, who actually feeds their pride. And then they get to a passage like Romans 9, which makes clear that God is not man-centered, but God-centered. A passage that teaches that God has the right to do with us whatever He's fit. Whatever he sees fit. A passage that says that, that, that it's not all about us. And when people have, have had this, this false gospel taught to them that excludes sinfulness and law-breaking, it's just all good fluff. And then they get to these passages about the God-centeredness of God and they have a crisis of faith. Without Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, you will not truly grasp the gospel. You will not love the gospel for the right reasons. And you will be unprepared for deeper, glorious truths still to come. These verses make clear to us that there was nothing attractive about us that caused God to love us or to give His Son for our sake. These verses should move us not to celebrate our own self-worth, but rather to celebrate the sheer mercy and great grace of our God. After these verses, we should see the cross as a testament not to how great we are, but to how great our God's love truly is. 
So we're going to study this passage, one, because we trust God, two, because it will help us to love the gospel, three, we should spend time in these verses because they will help us to better understand ourselves, to better understand other people, to better understand our culture. If we can understand and believe these verses, we will gain wisdom into what is happening around us in individual human hearts, in human cultures as a whole. These verses are a study in anthropology, a study in human beings and why they act the way they do. You will gain great wisdom in understanding who people are and what drives them from these verses. And I pray that as we study, we will learn how to better relate to, to better pray for, and how to be a better witness in our community and culture. Finally, a fourth reason why we should spend time in these verses is that at the root of all strife, at the root of all sinful disunity and troubles in our relationships and in churches, is pride. Pride is a great enemy of ours, isn't it, church? These verses can do much to help us kill pride and cultivate humility. In fact, let me just say this. If you understand and believe these verses, they will humble you. The struggle will be to believe them. Your soul will not want to believe these verses. Your, your heart will want to say, that is not me. The mirror is distorted. But if by grace God helps you to see that it's not distorted, that what the Bible presents is true, even about who we are, it will humble us. Mount Hermon, I so long for us to be busy in the work of being sought and light in our community. I am very excited about the things I'm going to be preaching on the beginning of January and the things I'm going to be calling us to. I'm, I'm excited, and yet I, I have a, a very real feeling that the devil is not excited. And he would love to create a distraction. He would love to create some fires in the church that need to be put out so that we get all focused more inward and we, we don't have time to reach the community. Satan needs somebody to get offended. He needs somebody to get hurt. He needs somebody to, to, to get sinfully angry so he can create disunity. But all of that depends on human pride. Humble people are slow to be offended. Humble people are slow to be angry. All that Satan might do to create turmoil in your relationships and in our church depends upon us being prideful. So how appropriate that God in His providence at this time in the life of our church would bring us to a portion of scriptures that has its sights dead set on killing pride and growing humility in us. So those are four reasons I thought of why it is healthy good for us to study these verses. There are many more, but I hope you're convinced. The time we have left, 
Let's just begin our study of these verses. I want to show you the connection between verse 17 and verse 18. So you see those two verses? There's verse 17, verse 18, and they are connected. Now, in most of our translations, you probably have some kind of a heading over verse 18 of chapter 1, something that the translators have put in to tell you what this passage is about. In, in my Bible, it says, God's wrath on unrighteousness. You may have something different if you're using a different translation. But what we need to remember is that those headings are not actually a part of Scripture. Those are added in as helps by the translators so that you can kind of see what's going on. But you might get the impression from this heading that we're suddenly entering a new section that is disconnected from the last section. As if Paul is, is speaking about this over here, and then he just totally changes what he's talking about and moves over here. And that would be incorrect. In fact, we know it's incorrect because verse 18 begins with the word for. It's a connecting. If you have the NIV, I'm sorry, you don't have it. I don't know why they left it out. Okay? But if you have a, a good literal translation, they, they shouldn't have left it out. You, you have the word for or something like it at the beginning of verse 18. And that shows that this is Paul's train of thought continuing. Even if it's not clear in your mind yet, I want you to see that in Paul's mind, all of this goes together and is connected. He's, he's following a train of thought. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For the wrath of God is being revealed. So what's the connection between that all that we've learned about the gospel and verse 18? Well, the key is the word revealed. Do you see the word revealed in verse 17 and the word revealed in verse 18? Paul connects these verses by speaking of two different things that God is revealing. In verse 18, it's the wrath of God. In the Greek, this is called a present active indicative. It means it's ongoing action. The wrath of God is presently, at this moment, being revealed against the unrighteousness of mankind. We'll talk about how that happens in a few moments, but you need to hear this. At this moment, according to verse 18, God's wrath is being revealed against unrighteousness. In verse 17, what's being revealed? You see it? It's the righteousness of God, right? The righteousness we need. The, remember, the reason God is, is angry towards us is our unrighteousness. And, and we need righteousness if we're to go to heaven. Well, verse 17 says that God's giving us righteousness, that His righteousness is coming to us. It is being revealed through the gospel. So God is doing two things right now, this very moment, and every moment of human history from now till Jesus comes back. He's doing two things. One, he's revealing his wrath against our sin. And he's revealing righteousness as a gift through the gospel. His wrath against sin is being shown. And his gift of righteousness is being given in the gospel. Both are happening today. So here's Paul's train of thought from verse 16 through 18. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power that God uses to save people, giving them the righteousness they need for without it, 
They are unrighteous before God and under His wrath. It's very simple. Kids can understand this. These verses simply teach that apart from God, on our own, we are sinners under God's wrath. When we believe the gospel, we are counted righteous and are saved. So friends, do you believe the gospel? Are you resting in Christ crucified for sinners as your hope? Look with me at the first part of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Heaven is where God is. That's what makes it heaven. Where He is in His glorious presence, where He is dwelling in all His glory with His people in perfect purity and joy, that is heaven. And God is in heaven. But he's relating to mankind here on earth. So at this moment, God is in heaven, we're on earth, and God is relating to mankind. And how is he relating to us? With wrath. With anger. And why is God angry with us? Because of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Isn't that what the verse is saying? Now, Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Some like to say that ungodliness is our wickedness towards God and unrighteousness is our wickedness towards other people. And so they try and say that, that those two words mean two different things. Ungodliness is my vertical wickedness. Unrighteousness is my horizontal wickedness. Actually, both words mean both things. To be ungodly is to be wicked towards God and others. To be unrighteous is to be wicked towards God and others. Paul is using two words that mean much the same thing, but he's just piling one on top of the other to emphasize the point that God is angry with us because of our abhorrent wickedness. Do you see yourself here? Are you willing to accept The Bible's teaching that apart from Christ, God is angry with you because you are wicked. That's bad news. But it's the bad news that makes the good news sweet. Do you accept it? Will you own up to this? It's not that God is wicked, it's that we're wicked and He's good. Our God delights in mercy. Our God delights in in showing kindness and goodness. He's pure and he, He loves. It's we who have put ourselves in this predicament. Now, if you are in Christ, all of that anger, all of that wrath that God has towards your wickedness was poured out on Christ at the cross. If you are a Christian, God is no longer angry towards you. All of His anger has been fully satisfied at the cross so that there is nothing for you but love and goodness. My favorite thing to quote, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. If you are in Christ, you are His child. He delights in you. That's only if you're in Christ. 
So what is your relationship with Christ this morning? How do we know that God is angry with mankind? In what ways is His wrath being revealed? If you remember a few months ago, we spent a lot of time in Genesis 3 learning about this thing called the curse. How God came to Adam in Genesis 2 and said, Obey me and you will be blessed, but if you, if you commit this sin, and it's only, it's only one pro- prohibition I'm giving you, don't do this one thing or there will be curses. And Adam, and in Adam we all sinned, Adam sinned, and therefore a curse came upon the human race. And what is that curse? It is God's anger being expressed towards the wickedness of man. And so the way that God's anger with humanity is being revealed today is in all the ways that we experience the curse in our lives. Let me mention some of the ways. You can think of a lot more. but Let me mention some ways that God's wrath is being revealed and that we experience the curse today. God's wrath is being revealed today in a creation that kills its inhabitants. Tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, famine, all of these are an expression of God's wrath against our sin. God's wrath is revealed in the futility of life so that a couple can spend decades saving for retirement and the day they turn 65, they lose it all because the economy plummets. Utility of life. God's wrath is revealed in allowing societies to go further and further and further into degradation and blindness to the point that they kill their own babies and mock those who live righteously and give awards to those who promote sin. God's wrath is revealed in the fact that the human heart simply cannot be satisfied so that a golf superstar can have the world at his feet and still not be happy, but must take for himself that which he ought not take. God's wrath is revealed in husbands that cannot love their wives as they ought. It's revealed in wives who cannot respect their husbands as they ought. It's revealed in children who cannot honor their parents as they ought. God's wrath is revealed in men so blinded by pride that they would kill each other just because they have a different skin color. God's wrath is revealed in the fact that human beings can no longer wield power well, but rather, power corrupts us. And in the end, it typically brings pain to many. God's wrath is revealed in an animal kingdom that now is willing to do violence to man. It's revealed in diseases and viruses. It's revealed in giving men over to wars and terrorism. God's wrath is revealed in freak, unexplainable accidents that take a person's life while they are young. God's wrath is revealed in the hospital bed, in the funeral home, in the graveside passing away of human life. Every one of these are a revelation of God's anger 
against man's sin. But remember Romans 8.20. God subjected creation to futility in hope. Everybody say, in hope. In hope. In other words, there is love in this wrath. God has brought all of these things into our lives, not because He delights in wrath, but out of love. For you see, there is a day of much greater wrath to come. Our sins are deserving are far worse than what we experience in this life. And every heartbreaking moment that we experience any of these things is a moment in which God is crying out to us, don't you see? Don't you see what your sin deserves? There is a greater wrath that is coming, but you can escape it if you will turn back to me and trust me. Believe my gospel. Rest in my son. You can be saved. God reveals His wrath in hope. He's seeking to wake us up so that we may have life instead of death. Friends, God is calling out to us through the suffering of humanity. He is speaking to us. The question is, are we listening? He will not be patient forever. His patience is abundant. But if it was eternal, he would be unjust. God is, listen to this carefully, we're nearing the end. God is glorified in his condemnation of sinners. Just as he is glorified in the salvation of sinners. If you will not be saved, if you insist on refusing him, He will still be glorified in you. If you trust Christ, you will be able to see and savor His mercy and grace and give praise to Him forever. But if you will not, the saints and the angels in heaven will one day look upon you being eternally punished in hell And on that day, they will worship God for His justice, His power, His holiness, and His hatred of wickedness. God will be glorified in you. The question is this. Will you be one who glorifies His mercy or one who glorifies His justice? Justin. Christmas time. How does this fit with Christmas? This morning you're you're telling us all about the, the curse of God on humanity and all the ways that God's wrath against our sin is being revealed. What does that have to do with with Christmas? Friends, what is Christmas all about? So many of us here in America, even those who don't step foot in a church, they know the the story of Christmas, of a a boy being born in a manger because there wasn't a room in the end. They, They get the what of Christmas, but they don't know the why. What's it really about? 
Why did God become a man? Was it not to bear His own wrath in our place? Was it not to save us from the wrath to come? Why is it that Christmas is so wonderful and such a joy? Because God Himself came to bear for us what we deserved. There is therefore now no condemnation, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. Through Jesus, there will be a day when we will be delivered out of this cursed world. We will be delivered out of our own sin. We will be brought to live in His eternal blessings on a perfect, uncursed earth forever. That's what Christmas is about. It's what we sang about a while ago in Joy to the World. No more let sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as, far as the curse is found. The curse is found here on us this very day. God's wrath is being revealed against our sin. But here is the message of Christmas. Here's the message of the Gospel. Christ came to deliver us from the curse. If we will have Him. Jesus was born to die. And through faith in Him, we are all saved from the wrath of God. And we now dwell in the glorious love and compassion and mercy and kindness and joy of God. So let us celebrate Christmas by celebrating Christ and the gospel and the great grace that God gives us. Are you resting in Christ this morning. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about